welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am your host, Mary Catherine Ham, and we are departing from our normal format just a little bit on this special week uh, because I get to welcome one of my favorite, and this is a compliment, loudmouth ladies <laughs> onto the program. I, I am, that is I'm, a compliment. Yes, exactly. I'm welcoming Jennifer Say. Um, I have known her for uh, a bit as an online buddy who was at the forefront of the uh, fights against COVID restrictions and school closures. And I appreciated her voice so much. And then as I got to know her, I realized later, oh, she's this really big deal at Levi's. <laughs> I had, did not know when I first started tweeting with her, but now she has written a book called Levi's Unbuttoned. The woke mob took my job, but gave me my voice. So I want to unpack all of that uh, with you, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, MK. It's so nice to finally actually kind of meet you for real. <laughs> um, it's interesting if I could just comment on what you just said. Is I can't even tell you how many people have said just that to me. We had no idea that not only you worked at Levi's, but that you had this like really big job there. And it's ironic, which is a nice way to say it, because of course the reason I got pushed out of the company is because I was saying these things that were considered unacceptable as this is according to the powers that be inside as the president of Levi's and yet no one really knew I didn't yeah. I didn't have it in my bio I didn't talk about it I didn't you know presume to present myself as the president of Levi's or speaking on behalf of Levi's and so that just makes the whole thing even dumber <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it is dumb. Um, so <laughs> just to give people the background, uh, you were at the time, was the title chief branding officer? I was. So it went on for long enough that I actually had two different titles. <laughs> so I um, was the chief marketing officer at Levi's for eight years. And that's yeah. the role that I held, which is a very public job, very big job. Um, that was the job that I held as of March 2020 when I started this errand of pushing back on school closures. And I got promoted right. in October of 2020 to the brand president, which meant that I not only oversaw marketing, but all of products. So the jeans that you buy and wear, all of that, how they were designed, how they were made. Um, so I was, you know, a loud, what did you say? A loud mouth lady <laughs> and yes. being told to be quiet because I was going to affect the reputation of the business, you know, of the company and ultimately drive the business into the ground. That's the rationale. And yet I was doing a good enough job that I got promoted. And of course, our stock price, you know, went up and up and up uh, post lockdown when I took over. And, and so the rationale was completely flawed and faulty. It was really which reveals the the real issue, which is, I said something you're not allowed to say that went against the mainstream narrative. You can't do that. That's too disobedient. It's dangerous. So, I mean, the long and short of it is I pushed back on school closures for two years and was told in January of 2022 that I couldn't work there anymore because I said stuff you're not supposed to say. And I was warned repeatedly for two years and I refused to stop because, because what I was saying was true long-term school closures were harmful for kids. It was completely obvious they were going to be harmful. Now we're seeing it as true, but the truth didn't matter. I was too much of a loud mouth. <laughs> right. It's not controllable. Um, so I, and you know, the, the end part of the story is, you know, I was told there wasn't a place for me. I was offered severance of a million dollars. I did not want it because it would have amounted to hush money. I would have had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So I resigned very publicly um, in an op-ed on Barry Weiss's Common Sense Substack. And then here we are. I'm talking yeah, so, to you. And so I get to go, talk to you because I didn't sign the NDA. So I know. And I, I love that. I love I love that calculation um, because having your voice matters in these discussions. And the fact was that the company didn't want you to have the discussion. Um, and I think so much of the damage that we've seen over the past two years to families, to institutions, to schools and school children is because people are not willing to have the discussion. So you go from uh, sort of on track to be the first female CEO of Levi's likely uh, to having to quit dramatically uh, to maintain your voice in 2022 
tell me a little bit, and along the way, your, your book is about sort of whether to shut up. Uh, you know, that's, that's a theme that runs through, right? Um, and something, and wrestling with ourselves to be brave about saying things. Uh, a little bit about woke culture as well. And I, I want to hear about that inside Levi's and how you talked about that. But tell me, um, from the very beginning, there's so much in this book that I can relate to. And there's, there's a lot from the beginning of your pandemic experience that lines up with a lot of, like I said, my whole group of loudmouthed ladies. Um, and one thing that I noticed is that all of them, without fail, those who were outspoken about school closings from an early time, were digesting data. That's... That was the thing that animated most of us. So tell me a little bit about how your pandemic started. I mean, you're in San Francisco. It is not necessarily an epicenter of the disease itself, but of the hysteria about the disease. Yeah, I think we were the first city to lock down. I mean, before even California, before Gavin Newsom locked down all of California. You know, if you act before Gavin Newsom on that, you're really ahead of the curve. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So it started March 13th of 2020. Um, The city shut down, schools shut down. Of course, it was all two weeks to slow the spread, which seemed patently ridiculous to me from the beginning. It would be like stepping on a garden hose. Sure, the water would stop for a second, but you take your foot off and the water's going to come spouting out. And so even before the lockdown, I started obsessively reading data. And the irony of this, as you well know, is we're the ones being told we're stupid and ill-informed and um you know the insult is you're doing your own research hell yeah i am um and i you know i can guarantee you i have read reams more than all the people yelling these things at me so you know one of the early data points that was really striking to me is remember italy right remember all the sort of horrible um catastrophic images coming out of italy the median age of death in that first phase in Italy was over 80 years old. The median, not the average, the median. So that meant nobody young was, was dying. And so I started just reading obsessively and it just seemed to be something that afflicted. Yes, it was very dangerous for older people. And in some rare instances for people um, who were vulnerable because of, you know, pre-existing conditions. But even that was dramatically less than just age as a, as a factor. And yet we were shutting down the entire world to protect people that should be protected, but already were alive longer than the average life expectancy. And there was no discussion of the harms that would be caused, not just to children, um, to small business owners, um, to people who were sick in the hospital who couldn't see loved ones. I mean, it was inhumane and cruel, and I, and you weren't allowed to say it. You know, the, the narrative was, unless you're willing to stay home and lock your children in their bedroom and submit them to Zoom school, you're an evil, horrible racist who wants everyone to die. And Never mind the fact that the only people who could really do that were the well-to-do, Yes, you know, and so it was just completely ignoring those without means, um, the working class who couldn't stay home because they had hourly wage jobs or whatever they had, and they had left their kids home alone to navigate Zoom school, and it just seemed the most insane thing to me from the very beginning and i just kept reading and reading and reading and i'm reading things in like stat news i mean i didn't do that well in statistics in college (laughs) i mean i did fine um it's not that hard to sift through the data you know I, i don't have to be a doctor to read a bar chart yeah well you note that um you know while this was all happening and everything was shutting down and i remember feeling similar to you like disconcerted by everyone's reaction to this thing. Uh, And then you say at one point, uh, I thought if I applied logic and data, all would be fine. (laughs) And I was like, I also had that feeling. And then you realize, oh, that's not how we're operating right now. So it was a strange feeling. And as you noted in in your Levi's meetings, to sort of feel like, why am I not afraid and everyone else is really, really freaking out here. And the reason that I wasn't is because I thought we knew two things very early outside safer than inside. 
older people are more in danger by a long shot than young people. So I told my kids, like, you guys are good. Your parents are good. We're going to be a little careful with grandma and grandpa. That was, that was basically the whole pitch. Right. That's a good pitch. That was a very logical pitch. And I, we were, I mean, you know, we went immediately to Zoom work. We didn't use Zoom. We used Teams, same thing. Um, so we're bumbling and stumbling through how to use that. And we're meeting every day. We're having these emergency executive team meetings every day. Because, you know, of course, most of our stores around the world are closed. Our business was down 70%. Like these are numbers you never expect to see as a business leader. So I'm sort of panicked about that. That's nerve wracking. But the content of these conversations would always veer into, I'm never leaving the house. I can't walk my dog. My dog has to poop inside. I'm bleaching my groceries. And I'm like, why? And I would go outside into the world and it felt completely apocalyptic. And I realized people really think if they go outside, they're entering like a war zone and they could be struck down or will be struck down at any moment. And it felt so cruel to terrify people this way when they were really not at risk. Right. No, they weren't. And it's insanity. That's something that has uh, that struck me throughout and is something that I try to talk about. I know I know you can't you can't scream people out of their anxiety, like just grab them by the lapels and tell them everything's okay. I understand that. Um, But there really was a concerted effort to make this dire for such a large part of the, the population for whom it actually didn't need to be dire. And we focused on one fear versus risk analysis and balancing costs and benefits. And as you, there's one line in, your, uh, in the book that is um, the idea that the school closures would be that the fire drill caused a fire. That's what we did right. in so many right. areas of life. Yeah, it did. It, it caused a terrible fire. There was no way, and I knew it. I knew the minute school shut, there was no off-ramp and they wouldn't be open. And that this was, it didn't take a ton of imagination that for kids that didn't have all the advantages my children have, um, it was going to be catastrophic. It and just, just didn't a table take set. Much. You, had, you had two young kids who were in school at, or <laughs> out of school at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have four children. Um, you're about to join my, <laughs> my club of four kids. Uh, one was in college and he came home. Um, another was in high school and took to his bedroom to do Zoom school. And, and I want to be clear, even for kids with advantages, the, the mental health impacts, the isolation, that was horrible. Um, and I had two very young children, um, one who was about to start kindergarten and did start kindergarten on Zoom, which you can imagine went really, really well. Um, I mean, he had a half hour of instruction a day. He yeah. hated it. We didn't make him do it. And then I had one in preschool, but the preschool was closed, too. Um, except for essential workers. So we were divided into these categories that some people were essential and some were not, which is gross in and of itself. And so, you know, my three-year-old was also stuck at home. And I have to say in San Francisco, where I used to live, playgrounds were closed for over eight months. So you were just supposed to stay home all the time with your young children. And you were deemed a very, very bad parent slash person if you thought that that was wrong and damaging. Yeah, I think we had a, uh, maybe not quite as dire as San Francisco, but I was in Northern Virginia, DC area, which is, you know, was pretty culturally very COVID cautious. Um, and like you said, our, our outdoor playgrounds were closed. I occasionally lifted my children over several fences to let them play. Um, we, we did the same. And I did too the had, police come for you? They did not in my area. We, we always avoided that. But we had, um, I, had a, I had two young kids as well. And I remember the moment that I thought, no, 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 we're not doing this, uh, was when they were asking them to do Zoom school. And then I went and I was teaching remotely at Georgetown University because they wouldn't let any of their college students back on campus in 2020. I was teaching remotely there and they made me do a four hour uh, orientation over Zoom. And I just thought, well, that was exhausting for me. I, yeah. I can't ask this of my children. And it was very clear to me from that point on how much this was really going to hurt kids, not just not help them. Right. 
Yeah, incredibly harmful. I mean, I was doing eight, nine, 10, 12 hours some days um, on Zoom for work and I, it made my brain hurt, you know? I was fine for about an hour or two and I and then I started to kind of like implode on myself. Like you can't engage, you can't really pay attention. You also just become less connected to people, you know, like, and for a kid in school, school is so much more. Yes, it's an education, but it's also the relationships you make. It's a teacher looking out for you. It's the other kids looking out for you. And we pulled all that from these children. And, you know, if I quote um, a teenager that I've met in the last year, I'm making a documentary film and it's this young woman. um, She was in junior high when this all started and she really suffered just the worst of the mental health impact. She ended up spending four months in a mental hospital. Mm. Um, She said, none of it was real. It just, my life wasn't real anymore. So nothing mattered. School wasn't real. The people I knew weren't real because it was all mediated through a screen. The Fs I started to get weren't real. The bad things and the bad behaviors I started to engage in weren't real. It's like, it's not real life and nothing mattered to her. She just didn't care anymore. And I, and this is a young woman with, you know, there it's a middle-class family. She has two parents at home, tons of support, but we put this 13 year old in her bedroom for 10 hours a day with nowhere to go. It's, it's just so cruel. I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And there was, to your point, no amount of logic. I really mistakenly, clearly, had faith in my ability to, you know, convince people and influence with logic. Like, this is what I did in business in my career for 30 years, right? I would be the calm voice that cited data and bring people around. It wouldn't happen immediately, but I could bring them around with enough logic. That was impossible because there were so few of us, people like you and me, and you had the whole world saying, no, this is how it has to be. These are the facts. Everyone's going to die and you're a bad person if you don't think that. (laughs) Like, you're just a murderer if you don't think that. It it struck me early on that the call was not just uh, to stay in your house and call yourself a hero. Um, but, but also the, the social pressure was so great. And at times I wasn't as outspoken as I wanted to be, even though my entire career as a cable news commenter, who's right of center on CNN has been to be the weirdo has been, I'm going to say the thing that no one else is saying. I was trained for that and it was still very scary to do it. Um, there were, I remember a moment, uh, in, I guess it was spring of 2020 when I put on my personal Facebook and I was just bracing for the response, my, my husband's a first responder. So we were exposed regardless. Uh, So we were kind of like hashing this out as we went. And I said, look, we are not in a pod. We're not super careful. However, my kids are low risk. I'm low risk. If you need to drop your kids off to do zoom school at my house, you can do that. Maybe you have two jobs that you have to hold down, right? I have a flexible schedule. And all I wanted to do was offer to help some other people. And I was like, how'd that go? What are they going to call me? Now, <laughs> I got some mean responses, but I got, I, I was surprised. I got largely nice responses. <laughs> wow. But I'm surprised. That's partly because of my, my weirdly cultivated friend group as well. And this was like, I was so careful about how I said it. And just, just the offer to help other people was considered weird and bad. I know. Well, I, you know, I remember early on, I I was outside because I ventured out and I went outside to exercise every day and I went to the grocery store. I didn't, um, you know, order groceries at home. And I remember walking home after scavenging to find toilet paper, which if you (laughs) recall, was really difficult. And I, a woman was struggling with her stroller to get inside of her apartment. You know, she had like a double stroller and the door was, you know, and I instinctively reached to hold the door and she got in my face well within six feet and (laughs) screamed at me that I was trying to kill her. Like, and that's when I was like, I came home and I was like, honey, the world is insane. The world has gone mad. And her fear was that because I touched the door, mm-hmm. I would give them COVID. This is a door to an apartment building that I don't no. even know how many people live right. in, how many times this door got touched. 
Um, but that was when I knew, and this was early. This was like in the first month. I was like, this is so far gone. We have lost we've lost the battle here. We've lost our minds and it didn't matter how nice you were. It didn't, none of, none of that mattered. Um, yeah, it you, was a brutal time. You call this is a good phrase. I think it's very succinct. It's a time of rapidly escalating panic and the extreme narrowing of our lives. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I wonder, I wonder why you think that so many people succumbed to that so quickly and why the response was so emotional. Ugh, MK, goodness. Well, I mean, we were hammered with it. Yeah. Um, everywhere you turned, every headline, every Chiron on, you know, CNN, your network. Um, and I, I want to go back and say one thing. Um, even I, who was outspoken from day one and um, lost my job over it, I didn't say everything. Yeah. I was very, ca- I was cautious from my perspective, there were lots of subjects I didn't talk about that I also thought were really wrong. I focused on kids because I thought kids were going to be the thing that would bring us together, that we could all come together in defense of children. But I was um, very alarmed by lockdowns. You know, my husband went to a lockdown rally in May. I didn't go. I didn't want to be seen there. I was like, I'll get in trouble for that. Um, I didn't really talk about vaccine mandates. Um, even though I thought they were discriminatory, my company had one, I was pressured, you know, of course, into getting it because I didn't want it. Um, I would have lost my job. I mean, I lost it anyway, but I was trying to hang on to it. Um, there were all sorts of things I, I didn't wade into because I thought I'll stay in this, what I think is a safe space. Um, why do I think, I mean, I think we were just all hammered with it, (laughs) hammer time. And I, um, I think we're all sort of desperate to, we want a framework for how to behave, right? Like it's this, we're this increasingly secular society. I myself would put myself in that category of atheist, but I've never wanted a framework to tell me how to behave. I've never wanted someone to dictate to me what is right and wrong. And I think that's a unusual. I think most people do, and they want to be told this is the right thing. And if you do these things, you get to be on the good team right. and you get to have a lot of people tell you you're good and virtuous. You get to feel morally superior. So it became almost religious in nature, but it was religious and uh, authoritarian in a way that denied our individual humanity. And but it didn't matter because you were doing it to be good. So it was okay. You could engage in all manner of cruelty and evil and harmful behaviors in the name of what they believed was just. Yeah, it was sort of it was it was sort of seductive in that way that if you sort of check these boxes and you put on the mask, you're, I mean, literally, you're you're given you're given leeway uh, to behave in all sorts of ways and not to really examine uh, what was going on. I mean, I I spent certainly during the early days, I was like, am I am I crazy? Because I feel like I feel like we could be doing this better, uh, but. I looked, I kept looking at the numbers and I was like, no, I don't think I'm crazy. I think this is a bad, real thing that we can deal with by not just embracing one fear exclusively. Because if you focus on one threat, you will lose sight of every other threat in your life. And that's uh, it's just not a healthy way to live. Well, yeah, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's not just the impacts to children from school closures, which I would argue are going to persist for this generation. Um, I don't even think we've begun to see the dropout rates. Um, you know, we've seen absenteeism, chronic absenteeism in San Francisco is at 40%. There are some schools it's as high as 90%. Do you think those kids are going to graduate? Yeah. And what's going to happen then? Um, so we ignored that, but we also ignored, um, you know, basic medical care. People were too afraid to go in and seek medical care. And now we're seeing late stage cancer diagnosis, diagnoses. Um, We ignored our civil rights, the right to assemble, the right to free speech. Free speech was deemed bad and dangerous, which is why, you know, the things I were saying, it was justified to try to silence me or my husband who has been kicked off of of Twitter for saying that there are side effects to the vaccine. Known right. side effects. This is provably true. Um, and that's real why things. this is also, it is a real thing. And this is, that's why this is also dangerous because when 
we justify all of this insanity and cruelty and inhumaneness um, in the name of whatever orthodoxy, we don't have a discussion that's why free speech matters about what the right path forward is. If we had been able to have a discussion about schools, I think that I, I, in my heart of hearts, I know they would have opened sooner. Yeah. I know they would have, but too many people, you know, there were you and me and like three others who were all deemed crazy racist. So of course, then everybody else looks around and says, well, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to be called that. I don't want to lose my job. But there were a lot of people that agreed with us. Well, and that's that's an interesting thing about the social dynamics of this is I think the the parents I know who got very involved sort of early were surprised at how hostile uh, the response was from people who we thought we were on the same page with. Like we're just we're just trying to get kids an education here. Um, and when you showed up to a meeting or not showed up to a meeting, but zoomed into a meeting um, and were called a grandma killer. I mean, I, we had an art. This is in Northern Virginia. We had one of the formerly best public school districts in the country. Right? It was lauded, huge, huge, wonderful plaudits. People move here all the time to be in this, to be in this school district. And um, I was a public school kid. I was determined to send my kids to public schools. You had to really, really work hard to chase me out. Um, and yet when people showed up to say, hey, maybe we're not serving kids, the answer was just like, we are not on the same team. We, we apparently do not have the same goals at all. And we actually think that you guys are snobby, rich ladies who want your brunches back. <laughs> and most yeah. of us were like, wait, I didn't. That's, that's not how I saw this going down. No. I mean, it's a tactic, right? And it's a tactic to silence, whether they know it or not. That's yeah. what it was. I mean, I think there were some people that didn't know that's what they were doing. They felt like, you know, they bought into this framework that I talked about earlier, and they bought into this idea that they were good because they were staying home and locking their kids inside. And they were willing to banish anyone um, that said, hey, let's maybe think about this differently. But I think I continued over the course of the two years and even now to be taken aback by the vitriol. Yeah. It's, it's pretty astonishing, you know, and just for saying a thing that cited data and made logical sense. It didn't matter. Right. Sense went to out do, the window. To do as little harm as possible, right? Like that, that was the goal. And yet, um, and yet that's not what we were all aiming at. Well, part of the problem, I think, is maybe maybe you and I accepted that there was some harm that was going to happen. You know, we mm -hmm. were called deniers, but I wasn't a denier. I knew that some people were going to get sick and, and they were going to die. Um, and I'm not saying I cheer that or embrace it, but how do you minimize the harm when you have a bad situation? But there seemed to be an unwillingness to accept that, okay, this is a bad situation. Let's protect those that need protection right. and let's let the, uh, like, the, it was like this idea that we could save everyone, right. which was not possible. It's sort of this like extreme disconnection from reality. And even if you suggested that that was the case, then you were horrible for thinking we couldn't save everyone. Well, and that, but I think it, it yeah, we caused harm for so many others in being unwilling to accept that. No, and I, I think you're right, and I think it leads to to still bitterness to this day because the idea from some is that you guys, my husband, for I guess being a first responder, um, ruined it for everyone else because we were leaving the house. <laughs> it's like no, yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't going to be sewed up in three weeks if we had just tried harder. That wasn't uh, an option well, on the it's table. So and it's so clear. Look at every country around the world. Every country that thought they kept it out, it's not out. Right. It, it came in, whether it was New Zealand or Czech Republic or all these countries in the early days that were hailed as, you know, having beaten COVID. Nobody beat COVID. There was no beating. Yeah. There was, how do we operate? And, and that's why, and this was part of my reading as well, that's why there was a pre-pandemic playbook back in 2006 or seven that said you'd never close schools for more than a few weeks because it's too detrimental. That's why Denmark opened schools after just three or four weeks because they saw that the harms were too great. You have a pre-pandemic playbook so that you don't 
panic in the moment. <laughs> yes. You know, and we threw the playbook out the window and did nothing but panic and create division. Um, and I'm still angry about it. You yeah. know, call me well, divided. To your to your point too, in, in your book, you talk about how like I'm. You're like I don't need to convince all of you of all of my viewpoints on COVID. And some, some people will, of course, not come down where I come down or come down where you come down. Um, but what we were missing was the conversation. And I think that's part of what you write about in, the, in Levi's Unbuttoned is saying, hey, look, I'm, should anyone care that this executive lost her job? Maybe it's, maybe it's not the most important thing on the list, right? But what's important is that what led to that is this inability to have the conversation, which then I think, and you can, I'm speaking, not speaking for you, but I think leads us to not having the conversation in the future if people don't stand up now. Yeah. And that's, that's why I wouldn't sign a non-disclosure agreement because I want to put my money where my mouth is by not taking the money and continuing to try to be part of instigating this conversation because the harms are just too great. If people are too afraid of being vilified because they say something that's true or maybe they're wrong let's just say they're wrong so what yeah so what that it, it instigates the right conversation and it's you know to to take it also into the book where i do i talk about what happens it's also bad for business you know when you have these cultures corporate cultures where the thing can't be said you know, and the emperor has no clothes and no one can say it. You make really poor business decisions. And I could go down the list of the hundreds of companies in the last few years that have done so. And I'll, you know, I'll cite FTX and what's his bucket, um, Sam Bankman Free. Yeah. You know, here's this guy who said all the right things. He knew it was a charade. He said, recently in a in a DM exchange with a Vox reporter that, you know, woke Westerners adopt this woke pose and take on these causes so that people like us. And in doing so, they avoid scrutiny from the press. I mean, I'm really disappointed. And I'm sure you share some of this in journalists yeah. who failed to interrogate these issues. They failed to do their duty. They basically issued government, issued talking points as news. Or That's Pfizer not a democracy. It's like yeah, or Pfizer. Pfizer, well, Pfizer or federal government. Well, were they different? The Pfizer yeah, and federal government talking points, which is part of the problem, is that private companies became an arm of the government. You know, we saw it on Twitter where they pressured um, the government, pressured Twitter to kick people off the platform who said anything that went against the government narrative. This is something that should alarm us all. And sure, maybe nobody's sad about the fact that some executive lost her job and that's fine. But what about the people at my company who lost their job because they didn't want to get vaccinated? Do we right. care about those people? Right. At, at what point do we care? Well, and I wonder uh, to about sort of woke business um, and how it works. It, it has always seemed, again, this is one of those situations where you're like, I think if I approach this with logic, it'll work when it's not really about logic. <laughs> but it, it always seemed odd to me. Uh, that you would vocalize that you don't want about half the country or more to be within your uh, customer base, right? Like there's right. there's a lot of people out there, and a, a, especially for a company like Levi's, everyone wears jeans. Almost no one doesn't wear jeans. So right. why are almost everyone what is the motivation? Is really the protection racket worth it for that decision? Well, I'll give you the thought process and then I'll tell you what, whether I think it's worth it. You know, the thought process is, well, first of all, I think versus the days of yore where it was assumed that business leaders were Republicans, <laughs> didn't want regulation and greed was good, right? That was what was said. It was okay. Yeah. You were proud of it. You were trying to make a lot of money and it was like, took pride in being super rich. Now you have you know, the whole sort of political dynamic has been upended and you have all of these business leaders and CEOs and corporate executives that are actually left leaning, right? Like the right. Democratic Party has become the party of coastal elites. They feel kind of guilty that they're really rich. They don't want to say greed is good. 
they want to say, I'm actually a social justice warrior. I just happen to be rich because I'm so nice and good. But I will tell you, I am here to tell you, no one gets rich and makes billions of dollars that isn't trying. That is their intention. <laughs> that is their aim. It does not happen by accident. Um, I think that there, you know, there's the second piece, which I just iterated with Scott Bankman Freed, where I think they've come to understand consciously or unconsciously that wrapping themselves in this sort of woke stance will excuse all kinds of harms um, and ills against the American worker that are existing underneath the covers. It's a way to avoid scrutiny. Um, and lastly, I do think it's an attempt to profit off of the activism of young people. You know, you can believe in that activism or not. I'm, I'm not debating that. But the, the, the social justice activism of millennials and Gen Zs, who within my industry, apparel, buy more. Younger people right. buy more, have more influence in the fashion um, world. And so I think there's a real belief that we could, they could co-opt it and... Um, profit off of it. I mean, it's gross. It's a really cynical view that you can kind of co-opt this activism to make money, but that's really what it is. And then add to that, they live in such a bubble that they don't know anyone that disagrees with them. In San Francisco, I mean, I was like maybe the only one other than my husband. Right. I mean, it's funny. Somebody tried to introduce us to each other online because they were like, hey, there's this other guy in San Francisco who thinks that's what you fantastic. think. There's like two of us. Yeah. And we're like, we know each other. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know, because you're right, you know, and Levi's in particular is slightly more Republican in terms of its consumer base than right. than Democrat. We actually knew that, which is unusual in, in, in fashion. And so they really are alienating a huge swath of consumers, not to mention employees. Yeah. But the assumption is all the employees agree, all the consumers agree. And if there's a few on the fringe, they're fringe, and we don't care about them because they're terrible, very bad people. <laughs> there's, there's an interesting uh, crossover of sort of left and right ideologies in objecting to this kind of thing because you know I'm somebody who comes from the right you're somebody who comes tra traditionally from left of center um but my sense is like hey please stop telling half the country that you don't like them and then they might be more willing to buy your stuff and then we'll all be more successful because we'll have Levi's and you'll have money and isn't that nice but on and from the left it's like and I think you're right that this is a sort of really pernicious classism that is built into this process, which is, oh gosh, I ended up being a white dude who's real rich at the top of this company. <laughs> what do I do to excuse that and to uh, make sure that I can continue to sort of operate with impunity in various ways? Um, and it and turns into this. And have my kids like me. And have my kids like me, who I've been sending to very woke private schools their whole life who've been made to feel guilty about their privilege. And they feel especially guilty because they're not only white with some money, they're white with lots of money in their all white, very privileged um, private schools. And these CEOs are very influenced by their children. Um, and I, I do think, you know, you, you raise an interesting point because I think, and I've only come to this in the last day or two, I think part of the vitriol directed at me was I was a traitor to my class. Right. You know, I've never hid the fact that, I mean, I was an executive. Yes, I made a decent amount of money. I mean, nothing well, compared you to you could CEO. live in San Francisco. So that, I mean, that alone. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's like there's this unspoken pact that this is what we're doing, but you're not supposed to say it. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried said it to that reporter. And the reason I would venture a guest to to say why he felt he could say it to her and not be exposed is he assumed they were in the same class mm. and that she would not, maybe that obviously she didn't have the same kind of money, but they had a pact. She was not going to expose his lie, but she did yeah. because it was so grotesque in how he said it. But I think even now my peers must sort of be saying like, how could she do this to us? You know, the thing that kind of really set me aflame and <laughs> on fire, and it's when I really kind of got even louder, was in the fall of 2020, the private schools opened. And so all my peers were sending their kids back to school while telling me, no, you can't advocate for open public schools. Right. In the midst of BLM protests and all these companies, you know, waving their arms about equality, they were saying, you cannot advocate for low-income children to have what my children have. 
No, it was, it's astounding uh, because it was all the, the, equi- the alleged equity warriors um, who were absent from that fight, which just seemed on its face so obviously was going to hurt kids who were poor versus kids who were rich. So I, that I was so clear from the very beginning. And it was obvious to me for that reason, as you point out, that uh, private school kids were going back to school, that it can't be so dangerous because everybody's willing to send their kids uh, back to school. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what happened. You guys ended up moving. Um, and can you tell me... I had a tough time sort of letting go of the idea of my kids as public school kids. And I ended up homeschooling them because to me, that was the right choice for them and wasn't going to hurt them the way that zoom school would. What was your journey? Are they still homeschooled? They were homeschooled for a year and now they are in a little private school down the street. Okay. Um, Well, I like you have always been committed to having my children in public school. I, I feel like, I believe in the project and this idea of a free and equal education for all. I want my children to be around people that are different from them, from all walks of life. I don't want to, I feel like I'm not, I hope I'm not offending you. Like I, I always felt like sending my pri- kids to private school was like raising veal in a pen. It's like, you know, you're shielding them from anyone that has a different life experience. And I just didn't want that. That's not real life. And I'd had a very good experience in public school in San Francisco. My two older kids went all the way through, graduated. And so the choice I made, which I will also fully acknowledge was one of privilege. I chose to move and attend a public school that was open in another state rather than go to private, which also wasn't an option because everybody had flocked to them. They were so full. So we chose to pack up our bags and leave and move to Denver, um, where the schools were open. And this was sort of the beginning of the end for me, because when we did that, um, I tweeted about it. And um, it got (laughs) retweeted by um, Jake Tapper. And so it got a little bit noticed. I didn't have a lot of followers, you know. Um, And then I was invited to go on Fox. And you can imagine, maybe you probably know, but your listeners can imagine what happened from there. And I, I, I debated it. I talked to my fellow open schools moms across the country. I was like, this is not going to go well. You know, people are going to be enraged that I would dare talk to the enemy. Um, I didn't even watch Fox. I didn't know. I, I mean, I, I mean, I knew the reputation, but I, you know, I wasn't caught up in all the minutia and the details. And we just felt like no one, I'm sure you know this, no one will talk to us. No right. one will talk to any of the moms. They keep having the same doctors and the same teachers unions reps on the news saying the same thing. Everyone's going to die if we open schools. So somebody, Laura Ingram, was willing to have me on to say this is what the experience is like for children from a parent's perspective. Right. So I said, yes, I'm media trained. I was like, I'm not going to say anything I don't want to say. I'm not going to say anything I'm ashamed of. But that was really what set the employees you know, on my, on my tail, that was like this unforgivable offense. And, you know, many of them even acknowledged, well, you didn't say anything bad. I don't disagree with anything you said, but you shouldn't have said it to her. Well, yeah. And, and you know, as, as all of this did, it became so um, polarized and political and tribal uh, that if you wanted schools open, it was some sort of signal that you were this Trump supporter. And it's like, well, no, I'm just, I'm just dealing with the facts of this issue and I would like to deal with the facts of that issue. And I, I, I think also you're right. There was it was few and far between the media outlets that were willing or media personalities that were willing to take on this thing. I think Tapper had me on several times to talk about it. Um, and largely, you know, it did get pushed to the to the sort of right leaning media to discuss this stuff, which then made it more polarized. <laughs> like, right. It's not- that made it more right. And you know, the thing that was so alarming now i'm just used to it um it was like if you yeah if you said school should be open you were a trumper it didn't matter if you never voted for him that had, the facts don't matter here <laughs> and because of that you were a far right you know all right QAnon lunatic you were racist you were anti-trans you were that phobic like all this crazy stuff it didn't matter about the facts of your life or the arc of your life or any of the things you had ever done or demonstrated care for none of that mattered you just got pushed into this bucket and the purpose of that is to silence others i really believe that's the purpose of it 
Well, in the in the end, when you ended up uh, leaving Levi's, I tweeted at the time that you Jennifer Say was right about schools. She was loud and persistent, and has been proven right over and over again. But she was right too early, not in the exquisite, too late, all the damage is done timing of the elites. And that is what bothers me about so much about the COVID conversation is that eventually they just came to the same conclusions as we all did. It's just that you weren't allowed to for two years after all it all was said and done. Yeah, that's a good tweet. I remember it. (laughs) I like it. Um, Yeah. It, you're not allowed to say it first. You know, it's like the first, it, but, and yet somebody had to, or else we never would have gotten to that, that too late way of the elites. And you kind of have to just accept, okay, if I'm going to say a true thing first, I'm going to accept the slings and arrows and the name calling in an effort to open up this conversation. And I've been through it before in a much smaller way, a smaller scale, um, in being outspoken about the abusiveness in the sport of gymnastics. In that instance, it took 10 years from when I wrote yeah. my first book till people came around to say, okay, maybe she has a point. And just Before so, that, it was, she's a liar. Just so people know, you were uh, the 1986 national champion uh, in women's gymnastics and had dreams of being an Olympian and were basically on the verge of doing so. But the, uh, you were 15 or 16 at the time? I guess is that right? Six, 16 when I won the national championship. And yeah. the and the 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 sport had taken its toll on you to say the least. And so you 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 had a a moment where you realized you needed to leave um that was sort of pretty devastating to you and to members of your family as well because it had been this dream that everyone's lives had been built around. Um and then you ended up writing about that experience. So an- another one where Jennifer was like, "Yeah, I'm going to just talk about this thing." Yeah, well, I mean, in that case, I talked about it because I was personally suffering so much that I needed to try to make sense of it. You know, and I didn't write it till I was 40, almost 40. Um, So it was many years later. It came out in in 2008. So, you know, it was 20 years later, and I was still suffering the repercussions of this very cruel, abusive coaching culture. And I, again, naively thought, what? Everybody kind of knows this. Like, we're not supposed to say it. It's a secret, but it's it's not a secret secret. It's like a, a pact that we don't talk about it. But if I do, then the gymnasts will come to my defense. They will say, yeah, that's what happened. No, no, no. That is not what happened. <laughs> they called me a grifting, thieving liar. This was um, before me too. And I did talk about the sexual abuse in the sport. Um, and so this was before Believe All Women. This was, um, no, Jen's a liar out to make a buck because she... I mean, I was already vice president at Levi's. I didn't need the money. I was fine. Um, But I talked about the 84 Olympic team coach as a serial sexual predator. He was. Mm -hmm. He was. And I knew this firsthand from friends who he had sexually assaulted. Um, And they gave me permission to write about it. Um, But that was unacceptable. And then to your, you know, earlier citing of the tweet on the day that I resigned, 10 years later, people came around and were like, yeah, I stood by her all along in that exquisite way of (laughs) however you articulated it of the, you know, too late. Um, They want to pretend they were always on the side of right. And we see that now with school closures. Um, Everybody is acknowledging it was a disaster. You know, Governor Hochul said, wow, that was really bad with no acknowledgement of how she contributed as the lieutenant governor or they simply distance themselves from having done it at all you have gretchen whitmer saying we were only closed three months that's a lie you have fauci saying i had nothing to do with it that is a lie he was the face of our covid response as long as he was going to say that it was incredibly dangerous for children he was going to give public health cover to recommend that schools stay closed and teachers unions to refuse to go back. So at some point in the future, I don't have faith that it's soon, there will be not only acknowledgement that was wrong, but there will be there will be acknowledgement that it was a policy decision, that it was a poor, catastrophic, terrible policy decision that was made by actual human beings and that they did the wrong thing. That is not going to happen for a while. I don't. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because I've. One of the hallmarks of all of this throughout the school closings has been the gaslighting of those who sort of just breeze past 
what they did um, and their concerted efforts to shut everyone else up about it. Um, what do you think is the path forward? Because I know, I know so many people, so there's, there are different sections of people. There are people who are like, that year and a half, two years was terrible. I just don't want to think about it anymore. I'm going to move on. Right. Then there were people like me who were more involved and are more probably residually angry about what happened. Uh, and I'm genuinely concerned that if there aren't enough people like us who are still a little bit angry about it, or even a lot angry, the same people will remain in charge and the same thing can happen again. So that's where, that's what concerns me. Yeah, ditto. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I I think the thing that's important to understand is it's not our anger that matters. That's not why I want acknowledgement, redemption, whatever you want to call it, or accountability. I want it because there were harms done not just to people like me who lost their jobs, but people who couldn't afford to lose their jobs and children who will drop out of school and never go back. And the entire course of their lives will be altered. That cannot happen again. That's why we need it written down. This was a terrible decision and we will never do it again. And the people that made it, if they're still in power and in their jobs need to not be. They need to not be. I just don't think that it's going to happen for a very long time because who's going to own up to it? It's too catastrophic. Yeah. And you'd need, you'd need journalists to pursue it doggedly, but they participated. Yeah. No, there has been, um, it has been disappointing to watch folks in my industry not, as you said, not interrogate any of this and just sort of like, let it go. I, 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 reviewed um Anya I'm gonna blank come in it's uh her book and just thought like but there needs to be a culprit if the year was if the year was stolen and it's more than a year if the year was stolen someone stole it that's what I keep saying who stole it yeah it's the stolen year is the name of the book and she does paint a picture that I think is resonant and correct and relevant of these children that were harmed. But she makes an assertion with the title, The Stolen Year, that fails to actually say, and these people stole it and must be held accountable. Because at the end of the day, her team is the left. And there is a belief that these decisions were made in good faith and therefore there doesn't need to be any accountability. And that's essentially what Emily Oster said in you know, her recent piece, which everybody has kicked around and debated um, till they're blue in the face, you know, where she asked for amnesty. She's asking for amnesty for the people who made these terrible decisions because she said they were good people who did the best with the data that was available, which is a lie because you and I had the data and we knew and who are we? We're just moms, right? And we read it. Um, And so she's not asking for amnesty for someone like me. She's not asking for me to get my job back. She's asking for amnesty for the people on the good team on the left. Right. Well, and that that's, it's twofold is that one good faith decisions that have catastrophic uh, results should have accountability, even if they're in good faith. (laughs) That's one. That's right. And two, uh, the idea that only one side was operating in good faith is just false. There are bad faith actors on both sides, but Many people were just like, hey, kids are pretty safe. And to this day, there seems to be a concerted effort, I know not why, in media and public health to exaggerate the risks to children and to continue to do it and freak people out. I think that there is a continued effort to freak people out about the risk to children to justify the catastrophic policies of the past. I think it's all a post facto justification because otherwise there was no reason and we caused all this harm to a generation for no reason. So I think it's sort of doubling down or, um, you know, it's just throwing good money after bad to, to kind of protect the decision to begin with. And I completely agree with you. I don't care what your intentions were. First of all, I don't believe they were good on the part of a lot of people, but um, I also don't care. If you had good intentions but made a terrible decision, it was your job to make a good decision, then you should be held accountable. In business, that's how it works. If I had people that worked for me that continuously made bad decisions, even if they meant well, they didn't get to work there anymore. (laughs) Yeah, the intention is not always 
everything. But in woke politics and in woke corporatism and in woke school policy making, that's what ends up happening. And then you get bad results. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of that NYU professor, the, the, the organic chemistry professor. I mean, granted, he's in his mid-80s. Maybe it was time to retire. But he was um, let go recently because students wrote a letter that their grades didn't match the effort that they put in. And I was like, that's not what grades do. <laughs> grades aren't about effort, which is sort of aligned with intention, right? Like grades are about mastery of the subject matter, which, by the way, you need in order to be a doctor. Um, but there's this idea of we tried hard, we meant well, and so it's okay. And, you know, the question of did they mean well is like a totally separate question, <laughs> you know. Um, some probably did, some probably did not. Um, but again, it's irrelevant. People yeah. who were entrusted, either elected or given jobs to make good decisions about the public's overall well-being and health made terrible decisions. Therefore, they are unqualified. Well, that's uh, I'll, I'll leave you with this because uh, I don't want to keep you forever and I appreciate your time. Um, but what is a good concrete step to get us to the point where people admit that this was a catastrophic mistake and not just admit that it was a catastrophic mistake, but that they had a part in it. And we, we can get to a place where we have some assurance that if the next thing comes down the pike, we don't panic in this same way and hurt children again. What is, what's a path? I don't know. Do you know? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I did. You know, I, I think look, everybody has to play their own part in this. And, you know, my part is to keep kind of sounding the alarm about the need for open debate and dissent. And I also separately am making a documentary film that is not about that so much, but about the impact to children. And I really feel like, one, I want to create a record of what happened. Because they're already trying to sweep it under the rug. Like, I want people to have to look at these kids and hear them tell their stories and, and still think, that they're resilient and that there was nothing wrong with this policy. Because if we can at least come together to say, we harmed these children and now we have to try to help them. There needs to be, nobody ran on that. What are we gonna do to help these kids, you know, in this last election? Nobody actually ran on that. We need to continue to force that conversation. We can still help some of these kids. We can still save some of these kids. And then I think as part of that conversation, we can eventually, um, get to the point where we hold leaders accountable. And there needs to be a document that says we will never do this again. Yeah. We will never make these decisions again. Well, I think, I think we see it in sort of small revolutions on various school boards. And, you know, the press often writes about it as if it's animated solely by curriculum issues. And it's not. The curriculum issues were inflamed by the initial closings. But I think you're, I'll look forward to the, the documentary. Everybody should check out Levi's Unbuttoned. Um, and you write in your, uh, in your prologue that you hope that your story inspires people to say what they know to be true, but haven't dared to say yet. And I think maybe that's my concrete thing is that I'm always testing myself and saying, am I saying the things that I mean to say and that I know to be true, even when I know they might be painful um, and that I might get a little shunned for doing so. And I appreciate you being an inspiration uh, for being brave to do that. I constantly test myself too, even as someone that's a big mouth. You know, I have these pep talks <laughs> with myself. You got to say it, say, say the thing, say the thing, you got to say the thing. And that's kind of my fondest hope for the, the book is that people who read it will have a little bit more courage and do a thing in your life today. Say a thing today, push back today, ask at the school where your child goes to school, why you can't have parent teacher conferences in person still ask, just ask. They think everybody wants it. If no one pushes back. It's totally true. It's totally true. You don't have to, you don't have to blow up your life. Like I did. You can do one thing. And if everybody does one thing, I think we can kind of move it forward. So that's, that's why I wrote the book. And that's my hope. I'm right. glad you cited that line. <laughs> well, everybody, check out Levi's Unbuttoned. Thank you, Jennifer Say, for being with me. And we're glad to have you back on the next step of your journey as well. Thanks, MK. It's nice to meet you. Finally. <laughs> nice to meet you, too.